Welcome to Christ Church Conway's podcast. We hope that the resources you find here are used by the Spirit to strengthen you in your faith through the study of Scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the letter to the Ephesians. It's in the New Testament, right between Galatians and Philippians. It's an incredible letter, and we we started kind of looking at it last week, and and I'd said last week, you know, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, part 1, I decided that was the entirety, it was part 1 of 1. We're moving on, and we'll develop some of that theology as we go, but we're going to look this morning at, at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And as I've studied this passage this week, the, the opening scene in the, the movie or the, the musical Les Mis has become my favorite scene in any movie of all time. And I've driven my family crazy walking around the house going, look down. you like singing the song. They're just like, oh my word, he's doing it again. He's not even that good of a singer. But here's why I've absolutely fallen in love with that particular scene. And I realize that the whole story of Les Mis has all of these law grace distinctions and, and there's all of these beautiful pictures throughout. But that opening scene, I think, perfectly sums up and perfectly pictures the reality of the Christian life that that Paul wants us to see here. Think about it. All the the, the people, the the, the prisoners, are singing this song. Look down, look down. You know, don't look them in the eye. And it's just this like oppressive, horrible situation. But then every once in a while in the song, one of the characters will try to, to like scream out some kind of hopeful thing. When I get free, you won't see me here for dust. And then everybody answers, though, all of these instances of hope, look down. It's just like comes right back over the top of any hope that they can come up with. Look down. And then there's this shining moment of hope where, where Javert, who somehow is now magically dry, even though he was wet up there, he's, he's standing there and he hands prisoner 24601, right? Here's your freedom papers. You know what this means? And he says, it means I'm free. No. No. It doesn't. That's what Javert says to him. It doesn't mean you're free. It means you're a slave to the law. And then there's this exchange where where he calls him prisoner 24601 again, and he says, my name is Jean Valjean. And Javert comes right back over. My name is Javert. Don't forget it. Do not forget me. Because he's going to remind him every day of his life that he can, you're a slave to the law, and one slip up, and you're back in jail. So often, that's exactly what life in this world as a Christian feels like. We hear all of these cries from hope from the world, but we also hear immediately this refrain that reminds us that all of those worldly hopes are empty. We hear the refrain, look down, that it's not going anywhere. You're here until you die. But then for the Christian, we've been given papers that say we're free. Look up. Look up and see your freedom. And there's that beautiful scene when he's climbing the stairs and he's looking up 
And, and, and it's, you, you can see the freedom. You can feel it. But here's what we miss sometimes or that we forget is that we're constantly faced with this devil Javert who constantly reminds us of our failures and constantly is trying to get us to believe that the piece of paper that declares that we're free means nothing, that we're still slaves to the law. And Paul comes along and says, no, look up, look up. You're not a slave to the law anymore. You're free. The law's been satisfied. But Javert follows us around. He follows us around and he says, oh, but you did this. Oh, but you just did this. Oh, but you're tempted in this way. Slave to the law. And that's why we have to hear the gospel Over and over. And that's why Paul prays the prayer that he prays here. Because he knows. He knows that we're tempted to fear the devil. He knows that we're tempted to lose hope. He knows that we're tempted to forget the wonders of the inheritance of God. He knows that we're tempted constantly to forget all of that. And so he writes these words to the Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Most gracious Father, as we come to your word, Would you indeed by your spirit lift our eyes up that we might see Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. Paul's heard of the Ephesians' faith. He's heard that they've been given the yellow sheet of paper. He's heard they're free. They believe. They love their neighbors. But he knows. He knows just like is the case for him, just like is the case for us. He knows the devil is constantly there trying to get them to look down, to take their eyes off of Christ, to forget the hope of the gospel that they have. And so he prays this prayer that only God can answer. And it's very important that we see that. 
There's not an imperative to be found here. This isn't Paul saying, go remember the hope. Go remember the inheritance. Go remember the power. No, that's not the prayer. This is Paul calling out to God. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. My prayer for you, Paul says, his prayer for us, my prayer, the session's prayer for you, Christ Church Conway, is that God, the Father of all glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What is that prayer? That prayer is that we might know Him as our Father, that our eyes might be lifted up and set on Him, that we might see and believe and rest fully in the truth of the gospel. That's the spirit of wisdom and revelation that Paul seeks for believers. And that I seek for you and for myself even this morning. He prays this prayer that you might that, that God might give you this spirit of wisdom. In other words, that the Holy Spirit might might open your eyes to see this. And that's what he says next. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. When the world, Paul says, is screaming, look down. When Satan is saying, look down. That the Spirit comes along and lifts your eyes up to glory. To the gospel. To Jesus Christ, your Savior. Our Savior. That we might know three things. One, what is the hope to which He has called you? That's the first thing that we need to remember. That's the first thing that Paul is praying that we would know. And again, remember, Paul is not commanding that they know this. He's asking God to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they will know this. In other words, the way we move in the Christian life, the way we process through sanctification, because remember, these are believers. These are people who believe in Jesus and love their fellow Christians, but they need to have their eyes opened, the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they might know the hope to which he has called them. See, sanctification is what Paul's talking about here, and it's also a work of God's free grace. And so he doesn't demand sanctification of them. He tells them, I am praying for your sanctification. I am calling out to God that He would open your eyes to see this, that you would know the hope to which He has called you. And what is that hope? It's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the hope that we have when we see my sins are forgiven. I don't have to look down. The law has nothing to say to me at this point. I am no longer a slave to it. I am Free in Christ Jesus. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I have been made alive in Christ Jesus. I am no longer condemned, but I have been justified in Christ Jesus. I am no longer counted unworthy, but I have been brought into the family as a worthy child of God. That is the hope to which He has called us. 
and as we see in other places in Scripture, it is a hope that does not disappoint because it does not fail. As I've said before, this is not the kind of hope that we have when we wake up on Christmas morning or or on the morning of our birthday and we hope that the present that we wanted is under the tree or is on the table where the presents are or whatever it may be. This isn't the kind of hope that we have when our boss calls us into a, to his office after or her office after you know we've had the best quarter of our life and we're hoping that this call into the office is going to mean a raise. It's not that kind of hope at all. We all know those kinds of hope often disappoint Because we walk in and the boss is actually frustrated about something else we did. Or or we walk in and and, and we realize like, oh man, yeah, that thing I asked for is not there. I'm not getting it. This isn't that kind of hope. This isn't a hope for something that might be in the future. This is a hope based on something that has happened in the past. This is a hope based on the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, lived and died and rose again in victory over sin and death. And if we are united to Him by faith, we too rise with Him because He has paid for our sin. Paul wants the Ephesians, he wants us to know that hope. So when we hear the devil show up and like Javert say, oh no, you're not free, you're a slave to the law. We can say, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. The law no longer condemns me. For I have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. By his life, death, and resurrection. I have the hope of the gospel, the hope of righteousness, the hope of glory. It's mine. The second thing that Paul prays, that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, we've got this issue of Is it an inheritance that is for us or are we the inheritance? And and again, it can be read both ways. Either way that we read it is fantastic news. For either, Paul is saying that you would know what you inherit with Christ because it's not just that we have been made an inheritance. That certainly is true. But we also get an inheritance. We are, in fact, heirs together with Christ, heirs of the Most High God. That's the reality in which we live, that we are both His prized possession, the thing that He inherits from the work of His Son, and we are those who inherit from Him alongside His Son. So no matter how you slice this, take it as an objective genitive, a subjective genitive, it really makes no difference. It's still the best news in the world. And Paul wants us to know what is the riches of his glorious inheritance. That we get heaven. 
that, 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 that we get, like what he said through Jesus in the Gospels and in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. How can we not be anxious about tomorrow? Are you kidding me? How is that even an option? Why would you even say something so ridiculous? Do you know what tomorrow holds for us? He does. And it holds the riches of his inheritance. That's what tomorrow holds for for us. It holds his glory. It holds his provision. It holds his constancy, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his fatherly care, his guiding spirit. That's what tomorrow holds for us. That's why he's saying we don't have to worry about tomorrow. It holds the same provision with which he has provided for the sparrows. It holds the same provision with which he has provided for the beauty of the flowers. It holds the same provision with which he has provided this world to continue ever since the flood with the rainbow of God set in the sky as the reminder of his promise. It holds the provisions of the great party that is happening on Zion that Jesus is bringing us to. It holds an undefiled, imperishable, unfading inheritance for you and I and all who are in Jesus Christ. And for Him, tomorrow holds us. Because He gets us. And just like He won't let His inheritance for us fade or fail, or diminish in any way. He won't let His inheritance of us be reduced in any way either. This is why we hold to this great doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints because God will keep us for Himself right to the very end. And He will not let us go. Period. And Paul wants us to know that. So slice it whichever way you want. Paul wants us to know what are the riches of his inheritance in us. He's not letting it go. Then the third point of Paul's prayer, and we're going to spend a bit more time on this one. He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of of His power toward us who believe. And here's where we struggle. Not that we just easily maintain hope. Not that we are easily convinced of the inheritance that we have in Him that He has in us. But I think here is where the fear gets us. And that's why Paul wants us to know this. And that's why Paul fills this point of his prayer out more than the first two. That we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That we might know that he has us and that nothing can rip us out of his hand. 
that he that we might know that there is no power in this world or the next that is greater than the power of the one who holds you that we might know that the greatness of his power who holds us is immeasurable it's not just that oh he's a little bit greater than 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 what's out there It's immeasurable. And in fact, he fills this out and explains the greatness of it. This immeasurable power that he worked in us, uh, or power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's two aspects that he drives at that highlight the wonder of his power. One is the resurrection of Christ. That Christ defeated death. We have the silly saying, there's only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And Christ comes along and says, I don't really care about the taxes, pay money, whoever's pictures on it, who cares? But death is absolutely not certain. Because I will conquer it. And and we say now because he has conquered it. We've spent basically all of human history trying to figure out how to turn death back a little bit some way. Even if we can just buy an extra day, we'll take it. Literally, explorers spent countless dollars or whatever currency they were using back then, trying to find the fountain of youth. We might argue that thousands of people still flock to Florida trying to find the fountain of youth. We want to beat death, but we can't. But what Paul reminds us of is that Christ did. That was the display of power in his resurrection. That was the declaration that this is over. Death, sin, hell, Satan, the devil holds no power over those who are in Christ Jesus because they held no power over Christ Jesus. They tried. Oh, Satan tried. He came with every temptation he could, twisting the words of Scripture to present to Jesus just as he did to present to Adam and Eve in the garden. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus saw right through it and answered back again with the Word of God, knowing that he was marching to the cross to defeat this one who stood before him for his people for all time. Do you understand that's what the resurrection declares? The very power of God over sin and over death. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that death doesn't speak the final word because Christ rose. The second point of Paul's third point of his prayer 
that displays the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ is the enthronement of Jesus. He set Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection and enthronement of Christ declare the power of God over death. The resurrection and enthronement of Christ declare the power of God, as Paul goes on to say, over every other power, over every other authority, over every other name, over every other ruler, over every other dominion in this age or the age to come. Is that the Jesus that you worship. The one who has been enthroned above all power and authority. According to his great might that he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. Paul says in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He uses every word that he can come up with for power. He uses every word that he can come up with for authority. He uses every word that he can come up with for rule. To remind us that he has enthroned Jesus over all of it. Here's why this begins to matter. When we get to the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to tell us to put on the whole armor of God that we may withstand all of these attacks of Satan, the fiery darts, and and all of these different things. And what we see is is that list of of the whole armor of God, when we compare it to, to lists of the armor of God in Isaiah and in other places, what we see is that what we're being told to do there is one of two things. Either to put on the very armor that Jesus was wearing or to put on Jesus Himself. You can take it either way. But the point is, you're putting on that one who has been set in authority over the one who is attacking you. That's why the armor of God is effective. It's not take up the word, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The effectiveness doesn't come from you like, oh, I'm going to read the Bible a whole lot and do my sword drills. Or No, no, no. The effectiveness comes from the fact that this is Jesus that we're putting on. And he sits in authority over all authority and power and rule and dominion and above every name that is named. See, sometimes we forget as Christians that we're not actually revolutionaries at all. In fact, sometimes we so forget that that we, that we present ministry and, and, and the gospel going out as some kind of revolution. No, not at all. Because here's why. Revolutions are trying to get someone new on the throne. We're not. We're not trying to change the ruler. We're not trying to topple some corrupt person that's at the top. No, our God already reigns. Our Christ is already enthroned. He already sits 
in authority. Christianity isn't a revolution. Christianity is the true government worshiping the true king, following him in true righteousness. That's what we've been called to. We don't need to defeat Satan. He's been defeated. He's undone. Any authority, any influence, any power, any whatever that he may have is only because Christ who sits on the throne in his providence for his purposes has let him have it. Martin Luther commenting on Ephesians 6 uses the analogy of a dog on a chain and says that it can run and snarl and bite and even try to break the chain, but it can only go as far as the chain goes and no further. That's what Paul is telling us here. That's what Paul is telling us here. That your Savior, your Jesus, your Christ, the very Son of God, He is the one who reigns. He is the one who has power. He is the one who is in authority. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who has been enthroned on the throne of David for eternity and His kingdom will have no end. And if you are in His kingdom, Satan doesn't get you. He'll try. But the very reason you don't have to fear is because he won't win. He will not succeed. Your king is on the throne. Now, the question that we have to ask, why does Paul need to remind the Ephesians and us? Why does he need to pray for us that we might know what is the hope, that we might know what are the riches, that we might know what is the power? Well, it's because we constantly forget. We constantly forget. We constantly hear the world chanting, look down, look down. You're here until you die. Look down. Look down. And we believe it. We believe it. And we look down. And then, like those other prisoners, we just start calling out for whatever hope we can. I know she'll be true. I know she'll wait for me. Look down. I, when I'm free, you, you won't see me here for dust. Look down. Because all of those hopes are empty. But here's what they do to us. They get us in this mental, this, this emotional, this spiritual, this psychological position where we think it's all we have. And then we get scared to lose it. They get us in this position where they think these, the things of this world that we're being told are places of hope, even as the world tells us to look down. That we better not lose those because it's all we've got. We better not lose this world. We better not lose this life. We better not lose this stuff because it's all we've got. And what Paul wants us to understand is that that is a lie. 
That is Javert standing before us saying, you're a slave to the law. You're a slave to this world. Your entire hope is wrapped up in this world. And we believe that over and over and over again. It's why we live the the anxious and and depressed and and scared and, and frantic lives that we live. Because we've looked down. And so Paul prays for them and he prays for us that we would indeed, by God's power, because he's the only one that can do it, that we would indeed again look up. He's essentially saying, God, take their heads and turn them up towards you. That's what the Spirit does for us. He comes along, and maybe this is too violent an image to to use for Jesus. I don't know. He comes along, and he grabs a handful of hair, or or he just palms your head. Some of you can't grab it. And he just yanks our head up towards Jesus. He says, that's who you look at. That's who your hope is. That's who who is your inheritance. That's who my power is invested in. Look up. Look up. Look directly in his eyes. Look up. Look up. You will no longer die. That's the gospel. That's your Savior seated on the throne bloody and made clean for you. For you. Look up. You've been set free. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you set our eyes on Christ. We thank you that he's enthroned, that, that he is the head of the church, that he is our hope. God, we confess we confess that we so often look down and despair of this world when our Savior sits enthroned over everything. Would you answer Paul's prayer for us, we ask? Amen.